This is Jeff Kohler, and we welcome you to Disney at Work, where we're dedicated to bringing you best practices from Disney that you can apply back to your own organization. This post and podcast today is based on an opinion piece written by a guest blogger. The title of the post was, quote, the Disneyfication of a university, end of quote. It's based on a substantial sum of money that the president of GWU, George Washington University, allowed in having the Disney Institute bring their programming to the university. While I want to address both sides of this post, I really want to address why any organization would want to learn and benchmark from the Walt Disney Company. So please understand this is not about higher ed as much as it is, is about why anybody would want to learn and understand Disney and apply it back to their own company or organization, whether it's in the public, private, or nonprofit sector. That's really important because that's essentially what I do is deliver those kinds of concepts and ideas. And I think this piece really allows us to explore the why behind it. Now, three things. Oh, and by the way, before I give too far in, know that there is also a notes page that kind of outlines some of these things as well as some souvenirs to take back to your own organization to rethink about how you might apply them in your business. That said, three things from the outstart. outstart. First, I am unabashedly a Disney fan. Have been all of my life. Not pretending otherwise. In fact, I'm expressive about it, even wearing Mickey Mouse shirt as we're recording this. Two, I am also expressive of what does not work at Disney. It's why clients often come to me over the Disney Institute, because I can be candid about what's working and what's not working. Disney is a great company, but it's an imperfect one. And one can learn enormously from both ends of that spectrum. It also helps that I'm a small consulting firm with little overhead, which probably keeps my clients from having to spend millions to get those insights. Three. I am formerly with the Disney Institute. I created programming for them, I facilitated those programs, and I dealt with real clients in the public, private, nonprofit arena. I left Disney years ago and eventually started my own organization, Performance Journeys, where I still do that, providing training and development solutions as well as consulting. I then went on and started another organization world-class benchmarking, along with a former Disney Institute partner, Mark David Jones. Our belief was we could not only provide better insights in benchmarking Disney, but we could also provide benchmarks that studied other great organizations, such as Ritz-Carlton, Nordstrom, JetBlue, Harley-Davidson, Whole Foods, and others. We've done that for nearly 15 years, doing programs from Shanghai to Paris, getting in the trench with scores of organizations and helping them to not only see what other best in business organizations do, but really helping them make substantive and substantial changes toward improvement. Along the way, we've written some books, including Lead With Your Customer, 
which offers over a hundred examples of what great organizations do to include Disney. Another book I wrote specifically on customer service at Disney, The Wonderful World of Customer Service at Disney, has been used by universities as their text, not so much because they were focused on hospitality or on customer service, but rather on the culture and how it's communicated in such a way to deliver a compelling customer experience. That has been in use in some institutions for over 10 years. Now, why does any of this matter? Over the years, I've worked with a dozen and a half higher ed institutions from Shanghai to Abu Dhabi, and of course, all over the United States from Maine to California. I've also spent several years consulting with federal student aid, but that's all whole story. That work in higher ed started when I was at Disney Institute, when I was collaborating with CIC, the Council of Independent Colleges. Why do I mention that? Well, 20 years ago, these people were all huddling with me over dinner at the Adventureland Veranda before it became Skipper Canteen. And I remember sitting there listening to them as they confessed their concerns that the marketplace was getting crowded in a competitive uh, in a competitive space. They were concerned about how to stay vibrant and relevant and, and be able to bring students to their front gates. That same problem has existed since then, and perhaps even more so. Two years ago, Michael Horn noted that now recently deceased Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen consistently turned heads in higher education by predicting that 50% of colleges and universities will close or go bankrupt in the next decade. Christensen and Horn made a more measured prediction with, a more, with more nuance when they told the New York Times in 2013, quote, a host of struggling colleges and universities, the bottom 25% of every tier, we predict will disappear or emerge in the next 10 to 15 years. Now, by the way, they didn't even know about COVID-19 and the whole idea of a pandemic and the whole idea that you can't even bring students into one setting, much less anywhere else. And why am I mentioning all this? Again, this is not about higher ed. This is a reality to any organization. There are a lot of companies out there. There are a lot of organizations that are not going to be around in the future. And why? Because they have not gotten smart. They have not looked at themselves more closely and have figured out how they can get to that kind of world-class status that will keep them in business for the long term. Now, I mentioned the concept of benchmarking. Benchmarking means we're gonna look at other organizations and we're gonna learn best practices from them. Now, this has been going on for a long time. Um, you know, one in an industry, one company likes to look at another company just like them. And that's been going on. But, uh, but what has been different in more recent years is the idea that somebody from, say, healthcare would go over to a government agency or go over to an airline or go over to someplace like Disney and learn best practices. In fact, I can tell you, I, I, well, how long ago? It wasn't just recently, I had a hospital client 
and they wanted to do a benchmarking program and guess what they wanted to do? They wanted to visit every day a couple of different hospitals. That all sounds nice, but the fact of the matter is, is you can't see the forest from the trees when you do that. When you only look at organizations like yours, you don't learn out of the box ideas that really help you to take to take that next leap to where you are. And in fact, I cannot tell you the number of times I've sat with an organization like a hospital. And they'll say, well, yeah, this hospital's pretty good, but you know, they're really a private hospital. We're really a public hospital. Da, da, da. And they talk comparatively about, well, they're organized this way, we're organized that way. Well, their focus is on this kind of healthcare, but we're focused on this kind. And they make all these excuses for why the others are successful, but why they can't do it. What has made Disney a unique benchmark is that it's so unassuming. You see, when a hospital or a government agency or a, or a, a, a um, uh, an insurance company comes to Disney, they're looking at something that they don't have to get um, uh, comparative about. They see something and new ideas pop up. They relax. They look at this thing and say, you know, there's some good ideas here. There's some things that, that could happen. This is called benchmarking. Benchmarking and that whole idea really kind of largely started when um, two people, Tom Peters and Bob Waterman, created a best-selling book called In Search of Excellence. This goes back to the 80s or so. After visiting a dozen business schools, they started what, what, with what first colleges in the US and Europe back in what, 1977. They found that academics were wrestling over the same issues they were. What made great organizations? What made organizations successful? And they weren't getting very far. Eventually, Peters and Waterman started visiting great organizations like IBM, 3M, Procter & Gamble, even Delta Airlines back then, and and yes, also Disney. And this is what they found, quote, as we reflected on the new school of theoretical thinking, it began to dawn on us that the intangibles that those managers were describing were much more consistent. We heard talk, meaning talk from these best in business organizations. We heard talk of organizational cultures, the family feeling, Small is beautiful, simplicity rather than complexity, hoopla associated with quality products. In short, we found the obvious, that the individual human being still counts. Building up organizations that take notes of his or her limits and strengths was their bread and butter, end of quote. They published this book, did a video series as well, I think with PBS, and soon thereafter, people were calling up Disney. They were actually calling the Disney University. Now, Disney University, if you're not familiar, they're the arm of the company, one of the oldest corporate um, universities in the, in the country. And they were calling up Disney University and wanting to know more about how Disney treated its customers, its cast members, and so forth. In time, this became a business first known as Disney University Professional Development Programs, and then later the Disney Institute. Now some equate the Disney Institute with its initial Chautauqua style offering of gardening, cooking, and yoga classes. 
the concept of having people pay a premium to go and do what they could do at their home library or community center failed miserably. So, in an attempt to make the concept look good, Eisner agreed that the facility should be married with the professional development programming, retaining the Disney name and thus um, the pride of the concept of Disney Institute. The cooking, the gardening, the yoga classes, they didn't stay. And in time, the Institute even moved when Disney realized the property would be better served as a Disney vacation club site. Hence the conversion over to Saratoga Springs. Still, Disney Institute still does programming today. Well, not quite, because with a certain pandemic, they're unable to host classes. But for many years, they've been doing programs on topics like customer service, employee engagement, leadership development, and so forth. And that brings us to their work that they've been doing with George Washington University. Let's look at the op-ed piece that was written. Vacation of a University is by guest blogger Dane Kennedy. Quote, the George Washington University faculty and staff ain't got no culture. Or worse, we've got a negative culture. This was the verdict of the Disney Institute, which the president of our university commissioned last year to assess the culture on our campus. Fortunately, the Institute, which is the, quote, professional development and external training arm of the Walt Disney Company, end of quote, has a remediation plan. It has designed workshops to teach us the cultural values and service priorities we evidently require. The culture that Disney has crafted for us is not, it should be said, the high culture of the arts that the poet Matthew Arnold described as sweetness and light, nor is it the anthropological notion of culture, a system of meaning that shapes social behavior. Rather, it is corporate culture, a creature that has become all the rage in the business world, and now it seems is burrowing its way into universities. Its professed aim is to instill a sense of shared purpose among employees, but its real objective is far more coercive and insidious. Our president is rumored to have forked over three to four million dollars to the Disney Institute to improve our culture. Parentheses, he refuses to reveal the cost. End of parentheses. A select group of faculty and staff, those identified as opinion leaders, are being offered all expense paid trips to the Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando to, quote, gain firsthand insight into Disney's approach to culture, end of quote. For everyone else, the university is conducting culture training workshops that run up to two hours. All staff and managers are required to attend. Faculty are strongly to encouraged to participate, and some contract faculty, who have little job security, evidently have been compelled to do so. End of quote. Now, let me stop. That's about halfway through the article. Let me just make a couple of comments on this so far. All right. Clearly, you can see the, the feeling and impression this has. Um, there is this opinion being expressed that corporate culture is coercive and insidious, um, even though its professed aim is to instill a shared purpose among employees. Well, let me just start by saying a shared purpose among organizations would be a really good idea. 
And I'm not so certain that George Washington University can successfully defend its ability to have done that up to this point. Now, one could argue, should Disney Institute be the ones to hire uh, to bring that to them? Well, let me just say, one of the things that Disney does really well is it gets tens of thousands of employees all pointed in the same direction about what their purpose is and what their work is. And let me say, that really elevates the work to getting things done that might normally be um, thrown to the wolves as you end up with silos and uh, political agendas and other forms of bureaucratic notion in organizations. Certainly those kinds of things I have seen in many organizations and definitely have I seen them in higher ed. So I don't think it would be such a bad thing if you had some shared purpose. Now, I'm not, I would be the first to say, you're probably doing something wrong if you spent three to four million dollars on the Disney Institute to improve the culture. Not to say it wouldn't be worth it if it was truly changed and improved. In fact, I would dare ask, what is the value of having an incredibly strong culture that attracts people from all over the world to come and attend your, your campus and to seek out an education? That to me is worth a whole lot more than three or four million dollars. But if all you got from that amount of money, and we don't know exactly how much it was, but if all you got out of that, I don't think it was that much amount of money based on what was described, but let me just say, sending a bunch of people to Walt Disney World for four or five days, plus having everybody attend uh, culture training workshops, probably is not going to get you to that cultural state you need to, as badly as you probably need to get you to that. So I totally understand where Dane is coming from on this. The writer does make sense. Why are you spending this amount of money doing what you are doing? And let me also just say, faculty are strongly encouraged to participate. Encouraged, you ought to be like at the center. You ought to be the center cog of the focus of creating a better culture. And in fact, that's probably why the struggle is occurring with the culture at a university. Not that I know G George Washington University very well, but having studied a lot of universities and having studied a lot of organizations, let me just tell you that having looked at the university scenario, it's often faculty which is draining the organization of being able to really build that unified culture where everybody's pointed in the same direction. Add to the fact that you've got contract faculty who have little job security. I can see the problem with that job security thing, but I can also see that there is this segregation between faculty and contract faculty, which I often see in universities as if one is good and the other is, well, they're lesser than in that way. Now, I also will tell you, if you gotta bring Disney people to, to, if you're going to do a workshop, and I think you do need workshops. In fact, I wonder when's the last time you did do a workshop where you all brought in, not just the faculty, but you brought in the maintenance workers, the admin staff, the, the entrance um, team, 
um, faculty and so forth. When's the last time you really all met together? How often are you doing it? And no wonder if you're not doing it very often that you're not all pointed in the same direction. But all that said and done, if I were going to do it, I wouldn't be having a bunch of Disney people do it. I'd be having our own people hosting that conversation. In fact, that'd be a great place for faculty to show up. But then again, I think also a couple of admin folks and a couple of maintenance folks could also probably lead the conversation. If there's one thing that Disney does really well in its large group trainings, particularly its orientation, known as traditions, is that it invites the front line to teach it. Not some HR folks, not some management at the top, and certainly not an outside organization, but they, they create a scenario where people from the inside front line are delivering those messages and hosting those conversations. That raises the culture. And frankly, that's what Disney ought to have been encouraging you to do. Obviously, they're making more money by having their own people come and do it, but that's what you ought to do. And that's what has worked more successfully when I've worked with organizations like that. Now, let's go on to share the rest. We were introduced at the beginning of the workshop to the university's brand new slogan. Quote, only at GW, we change the world one life at a time, end of quote. Hold on. We change the world only at GW? And we achieve this absurd ambition how? The answer, it turns out, is pretty vacuous. By being nice. Care, we were told, is one of our three service priorities. We were given service priorities table tent cards, conveniently sized for our pocketbooks and billfolds so that we can whip them out whenever we need to remind ourselves how we change the world. These cards offer a series of declarative statements. Pablum, some might say, about our care priorities. Here's the sample, quote, I support a caring environment by greeting, welcoming, and thanking others. To help us care for others, the university has established a, quote, positive vibe submission website where we can send positive vibe to someone. It was hard to detect how many positive vibes in, a, in the workshop itself, end of quote. Now, let me just say a couple of things about that. Yeah, I can appreciate how a lot of people were probably rolling their eyes in such a class. Clearly, Disney Institute did not do a good job of really helping you think through your priorities. But you do need priorities. You need standards. You need key behaviors that puts everybody on the same page if you're going to have everybody point in the same direction. The problem with these is they sound an awful lot like Disney. Disney has safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency. Well, they didn't introduce show apparently to you, but they did uh, do safety and they did do um, efficiency as we're going to talk about goes on to say the other two service priorities give us a clear idea of the culture initiatives real agenda one is safety the other efficiency both exhort employees to improve their work performance the very first safety recommendation is an injunction to keep areas clean well maintained and inviting another important measure of efficiency is a willingness to embrace change and be open to new ways of working one might wonder whether work efficiency would be enhanced by redirecting the millions of dollars that were going to the Disney Institute into staff salaries or bonuses instead. But that misses the point. The main purpose of the cultural, corporate culture initiative is to create a more disciplined and compliant workforce. Our workshop leaders actually acknowledge that compliance is a central pillar of the project. End of quote there. Oh boy. There's so much to unpack. Yeah, 
you were probably led down a primrose path of trying to adopt Disney's standards. You should not be doing that. You should be identifying your own standards, but you should be identifying them and you should be living them and you should be making the, and you should be talking about them consistently. And I don't think that's been happening. And that is your deficit if that's the case. And I have to say, I, 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 gotta, I, I totally get it. Why did you take the millions and put it into staff salaries and bonuses? Look, everybody knows that it's important to have good pay and good benefits and so forth. No one misses that. But there is still a need for the culture. And all the money in the world, all the pay, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a few minutes, you're not going to you're not going to succeed even if you pay a lot of people and the culture still isn't there. Um, I know a lot of people who simply say, I just do what I'm told. I just get the paycheck and I'm just putting in my time. Why do they do it? Because they like the pay, but they hate the work. They hate the place where they work. And oh, if I had a dollar for everyone who told me that, I could easily retire. Finally, he goes on to say, lastly, we were introduced to G our GW values, ours, only in the sense that they were being imposed upon us. One might think that our president would be interested in promoting and honoring the values that are specific to our mission as a university, such as innovative research, teaching excellence, critical inquiry, and new ideas. Think again. As crafted by the Disney Institute and its administrative acolytes, our GW values are integrity, collaboration, courage, respect, excellence, diversity, and openness. All worthy values to be sure, but it's, it is possible to offer a more generic, but is it possible to offer a more generic and innocuous set of standards? Well, yeah, I got that right too. You know what? Those really sound like Disney's um, uh, values, so to speak. And yeah they didn't host you in a conversation about creating a set of standards and values that really were yours. So there is a lot that is correct about this. Um, but at the same time, I don't see from this post, I don't see what should be happening. Otherwise, take the money and give us more money and salaries and bonuses. But really, what is your plan, professor, for improving the culture. And why didn't George Washington University go to its business school or to its professors or to its ed educational faculty to, to, to deal with this issue? Because you probably do have a culture problem. And yet you weren't. Uh, there may be two reasons for that. Uh, one is, uh, you're just not known for it. And even the president of the university doesn't even see as you being a standout. Maybe you are. Maybe you are the best of the best when it comes to helping people define that culture. But uh, they didn't see it. So I don't know how anybody else is. Second, the possibility exists. Maybe you just don't know that. And yet your own faculty in your business college is still teaching without that knowledge and without that understanding. Well, as I said, and by the way, the last last sentence here, the GW Culture Initiative can be summed up in two words, 
Mickey Mouse. Uh, you know what? This is not about GWU. And by the way, I think the uh, president of the university, because not just because of this, but because of some other uh, issues, is being uh, coerced or being looked at or being pressured or being influenced or however you want to define it into stepping down. I'm not sure I blame them, but I don't know that once you put in another president and the one after that, you're still going to have a better culture. What is it about organizations like this and like so many others, they simply don't seem to get the culture piece? So from this letter, I'd like to talk about seven realities. Again, they're not all about GWU or even universities in general, but they are realities that many organizations, if not most, faced. First, reality number one. Most organizations are not pointed in the same direction. Organizations should have a shared sense of purpose. You can call that culture, esprit de corps, reason for being, but it ought to be fairly obvious. So obvious that customers, or students in this case, are attracted to it. This is not often happening on campuses I end up studying. In fact, oftentimes I can't even get a college or university to agree that their customer is even the student. Well, to be fair, it's not even happening in most of corporate America either. I can't even get them. I can't get government agencies to agree that their customers are ultimately citizens. I can't even get government or universities to use the word customer. It just seems like, oh my gosh, to think that we ultimately have to be accountable or responsible or uh, be based on somebody else's existence seems difficult. And, and that's why we have reality number one. It's, most organizations can't even agree about why they exist. Reality number two, you're probably not as good as Disney. And you probably don't like it that I said that. You probably weren't even thinking about comparing yourself to Disney, so this doesn't even make any sense. But I want you to understand, you're not as good as Disney. And that's a shame. Because you know what? Disney, after all is said and done, is a carnival. Yeah, it's just a very fancy, well-money-making carnival. And isn't it a shame that they do it better than your higher ed institution of learning or your premier hospital or your supreme government authority? Remember what your mom or dad said or should have said. Life isn't what you do. It's how you do it. Do you believe that? Do you believe it doesn't matter that you're just a custodian or a janitor as long as you're the best janitor or custodian out there? If not, what do you really believe in? I say that because I remember on one occasion I was working with New York City Department of Finance. Now, most of these people were working in City Hall. They are king of the roost. 
But, you know, we looked around the engagement levels of the organization, and you know where we found the most engaged part of the organization? Down at a warehouse that was sitting on the edge of the water that was flooded some months of the year. But these people were totally focused on delivering a superb product. Yes, the people in the warehouse were better than the people sitting in City Hall. It isn't about what your organization delivers. It isn't about what you do as a profession or what your job title is. It's about how you do it and how well you do it and how passionate you are about doing it and about making it happen. Which probably brings us to reality number three. There is a cost when you're trying to be the best. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about dollars. Ask yourself, what is the worth of having an amazing organization that is well-respected or revered by any and all? And I don't care if it's a university. I don't care if it's a, a, a city organization, municipality. I don't care if it's a if it's a hospital or an insurance company or a funeral home, what are what is the worth of having an amazing organization that everybody says, yeah, that is an amazing group of people? Is it worth a million dollars? Five million? Fifty million? Better yet, what's the cost of building one back up when you're sitting in the tank? I assure you, it costs more to fix it than making it, making it right in the first place. Crazy enough though, while we're talking here about money, it's interesting how organizations will invite a distinguished a consulting firm like Accenture or Pricewaterhouse, which frankly does have many good people in it. Although they often send their interns um, to do the work. Um, they'll come and they'll address your problems and they will spend that kind of money and more than what Disney charged you. And usually all you get from them is some kind of detailed report. And you totally respect, well, it was Accenture. They said it, you know, they're well-respected. You know, Pricewaterhouse, they know these things. Well, all that analysis. And usually no one is really taking you by the hand and helping you get where you need to go. So what is the cost you really pay? Well, let me just suggest it isn't so much about dollars. It's about being intentional. You have to work hard and you have to work smart. And you have to go at that day in and day out. And it doesn't just happen. You have to have that kind of fire in the belly for making it happen. In fact, going back to the, you're probably not as good as Disney. Let me share with you an example. Not long after Eisner, Michael Eisner came on board, he and Frank Wells, who was also the the CEO and the president of the company came and visited one of the Disney Institute programs. They walked in and they sat in the back for about 40 minutes. And then Michael Eisner, both of them, walked out of the, the room. My, my vice president, uh, Valerie Elberly, told me this story. They walked out of the room and Michael said to Frank, look, see, I told you, they're giving away our secrets. They're telling us the very thing that makes us competitive in the marketplace. We don't want them sharing our secrets. We don't want them telling those stories. We got, we got to be careful. And Frank, in his measured, smart way, said, wait a minute, Michael. Wait a minute. There is one thing that we do that none of those other organizations in there are doing. We work very, very, very hard. 
at pulling off what we pull off. And that's the secret to our success, is that kind of work and that kind of effort. So I ask you the question, are you willing to pay the cost that it takes to be the best, to get that organization to the level it needs to be? Reality number four, most people can't see the forest from the trees. There's nothing wrong with hiring someone to remind you of the importance of the things we're talking about or helping you get on your way. But if you hire them to do it for you, then you probably aren't the leader you need to be. Your people should be embracing this, building on it, teaching others. It's okay when you're in the middle of the thicket to have difficulty seeing the big picture. That's why it's good to have others come help you. That's what I make a living doing and it's what others do so as well. What is the problem is when you're in the thicket and you don't think there is a problem, much less a need to see anything differently. One colleague of mine, and I just might let you know that he is a professor who read this article about GWA, and this is what he had to say, quote, academics have an illness where they don't believe they have to learn from anyone. Let me tell you, everybody has got to learn. And the problem is, is most people don't see that in their own role, which is interesting because, interesting because too often the most quote-unquote valued people in an organization somehow end up being the most quote-unquote, entitled. And that happens in hospitals with doctors, government with politicians, and yes, universities with professors. They see themselves above it all. They see themselves as already getting it. They don't see themselves as entitled. That's why you see those studies where the doctor, where they show data showing doctors who think they're above it all, who know it all, who don't really engage in conversations with their nurses in the operating room end up having more problems in that operating room and consequently more lawsuits, I may mention, than those who are collaborative. I would ask the same question. Do you really value everyone around you? Do you value outside voices who come in and help you see things for what they are, or do you see yourself as one of the entitled who is above it all? I can't tell you the number of organizations who say, oh yeah, we're gonna send all of our admin, we're gonna send a lot of people. Yeah, no, not the faculty. The faculty don't get this. The faculty don't wanna attend. Or the doctors don't wanna attend. No, we can't get the physicians, can't get surgeons, they're too busy. Or the politicians, no, no, they're not gonna come. I get this all the time. They're often the people who can't see most the forest from the trees. Reality five, number five. This is not about fixing your pay. Your people are not downtrodden because they're underpaid, though commensurate pay and benefits are baseline. I've worked with organizations whose staff make much less than you and are far more invested and engaged. This is not about you getting more salary and bonuses. It's about a culture of engagement. Yes, salary matters. You need to be, you need to be at that right median level. But beyond that, I, I know so many who get paid well, but they are not engaged. 
If you aren't using your own professors to guide you through the process of understanding your culture, you either have one of two things happening. Either you have a brand problem because even your own university leadership doesn't appreciate what you bring to the table. Or two, you really can't bring anything relevant to the table. I certainly didn't see that in the latter in the opinion pieces that were written. Anyone can criticize, but can you deliver solutions? And those solutions are not about just, we need to get paid more, or we need to dump the university president. No, it isn't gonna be about that, because I can tell you, you can add more pay and you can change out the president. You can change out the president another four or five times. It ain't gonna change the culture. What you have got to do is figure out how to better engage your workforce. That, that is the trick. That is what makes world-class organization. And by the way, reality number six, world-class organizations learn from other organizations. When I say that, in doing so, they adapt, not adopt those ideas. You don't need to become Disney. You don't need to become Mickey Mouse, but you do need to be the quote-unquote Disney in the sense that you are offering the very best in your industry or your line of work. You may also need to be the Apple or the NASA or the Wegmans. Not that any of these organizations are perfect either, but there is a lot to learn from them. By the way, Disney's own orientation, the basis for which they went and did workshops for GW, is called Disney Traditions. Why did they call it that? Because they wanted to build their own culture of customer service and excellence and not fall to the old stereotypes of a carnival. They wanted to build off of their own heritage. That was the mistake Disney made when they worked with GW, based on what I've read here is they just accepted Disney saying, well, if Disney's standards are uh, safety and efficiency, then our standards ought to be safety and efficiency. If their values are, are diversity and openness, then ours ought to be that. No, 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 no. What you need to do is you need to learn from other organizations, but then you need to make them yours. You need to adapt, not adopt others' ideas and make them your own. Great example is given with Apple. Apple, uh, great story is told how the whole idea of the Genius Bar was born out of a simple observation of sitting one evening and observing what was going on at the bar at Ritz-Carlton. The centeredness of it, the sense of sociality, and the sense of movement, that gave the idea originally to those who created the original Apple store that they needed something like that, a centerpiece by which people would come and socialize and share and, and, um, and experience. Other great, great corporations, they learn from others and then they adapt it. They didn't build a bar then at, well, I mean, they built a genius bar, but they didn't start offering, you know, gin and tonic. What they did is they built, they adapted the ideas to their own organization. Finally, reality number seven. If there's a problem, it's probably a leadership one. Well, this, I think we all agree, you probably have a leadership problem. 
because only when you have leadership excellence in place, and this is manifested by what I'll show on my notes page as the chain reaction of excellence, only when you have leader ex excellent, leadership excellence do you have a totally engaged workforce. And without that sustainable or that totally engaged workforce, can you have a sustainable, compelling customer experience? In this case, a student experience. You have to have the, the first cog that moves all this is leadership excellence. The thing we don't agree about is who the leader is. Yes, yes, the president of the university, the people at the head, at the top, they are positional leaders. But leadership is more than the person at the top. And in fact, um, the great message out there in leadership is that usually leadership comes from within, not from above. And what makes a great organization is when you engage and empower everyone to step forward, not in a too many chefs in the kitchen kind of way, but in creating a, a culture uh, an organization where everyone in a personal way takes the lead and, and helps build excellence within the organization. Yeah, there's a, there's a leadership problem in most organizations, but it comes from throughout the organization, not just from the top down. Well, those are the seven realities of trying to build a culture and of what organizations, again, this isn't about George Washington University because I could go through a lot of other higher ed organizations that are far worse than this one. And, uh, and we'd see the same problems. And then we would go to the outside and see the same problems occur in the public sector and in the private sector and in other nonprofit entities. These issues are a reality, but so are the solutions. There are solutions. And one of them is if you want to be world-class, then learn from other world-class organizations. Be open to other ideas, even from organizations like Disney and then learn to adapt those ideas in improving the work that you offer, the, the work that you deal with day in and day out. In putting all this together, let me share with you a, a final story about one of the great organizations, great at the time for sure, that benchmarked other great organizations. The story is, actually of General Electric. You'll remember Jack Welch was the CEO and there came a time when Jack was determining how the organization was going to continue on after his departure. To address this, Jack decided that he would identify about 70 of his top performers across the organization. And what he would have them do is put them into teams and then they would go and visit the entire General Electric operation across the globe. He wanted them to look across the entire operation, the entire corporation, and then come back and present to him in groups 
recommendations that they would make for taking the organization and moving it to the next level. This would be about, as I recall, a three-month journey um, in which they would literally travel around the world and get in the trench of every part of General Electric's operation. It happened to be that the very first stop General Electric made was to Walt Disney World. Why? Because at that time, General Electric was a sponsor of Disney's. And in fact, uh, while it originally had sponsored uh, Carousel of Progress and then later Horizons, at this time, I believe it was sponsoring the very new but very popular Illuminations. Um, and uh, that uh, was the culmination of our day with him, where the, we, we did a a dessert party in which they saw the illuminations, but they spent the whole day with us at Disney. I was in charge of the group and I took them underneath the tunnels at the Magic Kingdom and the Utilidors and talked about, mind you, the technology down in the Utilidor is not as good as General Electric's technology, but we didn't take them down there to show how we pneumatically move trash. No, we took a look and how the back of the house was supporting the front of the house. And then we went to other parts of the operation. We talked to leadership um, at Epcot, and we gave them an immersion into what is the culture of the Walt Disney Company. And after they spent a day with us, then they went on for the next three months. Now, the sponsor of the, the, the General Electric, like all, um, Disney sponsors had a team of people um, who um, were stationed um, at the parks and um, and were kind of the host for for the company there. And that individual told me that after this three month sojourn, they came back and made their presentations to Jack Welch. And he said the interesting thing about each of the presentations, the thing, that almost every presentation had in common is that in presenting their recommendations of where the corporation needed to go, and mind you, General Electric was the best of the best at this time. And in making their recommendations of how to take the best of the best even to a better level, almost all of them hearkened back to their experience with Disney. Now, I got to tell you, Disney is imperfect. But boy, if you open your mind to it, you can learn some amazing things about the business behind the magic. And if you're open to those ideas, you can adapt them to your own organization, apply them to your brand, to your culture, and take, your, take, take yourselves to another, to a whole nother level. Now, I have been uh, pretty passionate in this uh, podcast, and uh, I have, and I apologize if that, that passion, I've been kind of all over the place. But I do wanna summarize with some, what I refer to as souvenirs for your organization, some, some questions to ask yourself as a result of the things I've presented here. First, what are you doing intentionally to get your organization pointed together in the right direction? Next, 
How can you be better than Disney? How can you be the best of the best? Third, what price are you willing to pay to be world-class? What's the investment you're willing to make? Four, are you having difficulty seeing the forest from the trees? How could others on the outside help you see the big picture? How can an entitled attitude keep you from seeing the big picture, from growing and improving? How can you raise the engagement level of your employees? What would be the value of doing so? How can you learn from other organizations outside yours? How can you adapt, not adopt those ideas and make them your own? And finally, how do you define leadership? How do you create a culture where everyone can exercise leadership in a personal manner and thus take the organization to another level. Well, thanks. Thank you for joining us for this Disney at Work podcast. If you're listening to this, you're probably, uh, well, maybe you have a love of all things Disney, but maybe you're new. Maybe you're coming from uh, a university or college or some other kind of um, organization. Just know that what we do on this Disney at Work podcast is bring you best in business ideas from the happiest place on earth to you and your workplace. We bring those concepts to you via our posts, podcasts, videos, books, programs, and consulting. Please subscribe to us and and search us out. Know that we also have Disney at Play podcast, which focuses on the fun of Disney. But our Disney at Work podcasts bring best in business ideas. And so please seek those out. Disney at Work is part of Performance Journeys, committed to helping you improve your organization. If you'd like a keynote speaker, seminar for your business, conference, or group, we offer a variety of topics that include leadership, employee engagement, customer service, teamwork, or dealing with difficult times, which we are all dealing with at this time. In fact, we'll put a link at the bottom of our show notes page to a whole nother online uh, set of programs and webinars dedicated to dealing with all that craziness that people are going through right now and having to establish themselves as virtual teams and, and working through the change and the chaos and all that. Know that when you involve me, you are Hiring someone who has successfully applied these ideas in the trench for scores of organizations for over 25 years. For more, organiz- for more information, please visit performancejourneys.com. Better yet, just contact me by email or phone. Tell me what's happening in your workplace and how I can help you take your organization to the next level. Listening is the best gift I can give you. Feel free to reach out, discuss your needs, your thoughts, your ideas, your concerns, and anything I might be able to do to help. Thank you for being a part of this week's show. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. And in the words of Sinbad's storybook voyage, always be sure to follow the compass of your heart. Thank you again and have a great day.